Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's an interesting knock-knock joke. I learned this one from my favorite five-year-old. Knock-knock. Who's there? Avocado. Avocado who? Please let me in. It's cold outside and I have no food to feed my family. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nuneman from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from author Amelia Gray. That'll help break the ice. Pretty bleak for a five-year-old. They grow up fast. We'll hear more from Amelia later. Plus, we'll speak with producer and songwriter Mark Ronson about his hit album Uptown Special. Also coming up, a brief history of rain. We learn war may be hell, but war fries are delicious. Indeed. And young fathers... They're a Scottish hip-hop outfit, not a support group. Give us a party playlist. (laughs) But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Senate confirmation of Loretta Lynch, the next attorney general. Details emerging from a shipwreck off the coast of Libya last weekend. This afternoon, the Nasdaq finally surpassed its old record high from back during the dot-com craze. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Richard Lawson, He is a critic for Vanity Fair. Uh, Richard, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about South Dakota's new slogan. Okay, their state slogan? Yeah, which is, um, we're better than Mars. (laughs) Like, the planet. (laughs) I guess it's accurate. Is this a real... Yeah, it's a tongue-in-cheek ad campaign to attract people to the state, but it has sort of a, a bleak undercurrent to it, which is basically... Because, you know, those 200,000 people uh, volunteered for the Mars expedition um, and will die there uh, because there's no way to get home. Because it's so far away as well, yeah. And so South Dakota, which has a low population, said, well, why uh, die on Mars when you can live in South Dakota? (laughs) Okay. That's actually a line from the ad. That's not, I mean, that's certainly underselling South Dakota, isn't it? Yeah, it it makes me think South Dakota has a self-esteem problem. I mean, they have Mount Rushmore, the Black Hills. They have the Corn Palace. I don't know if you've ever been there. The Mitchell Corn Palace. Yeah. We should tell people what that is. It's it's like this building with kind of interesting turrets with kind of onion-shaped tops on it. And every year, they decorate it with ears of corn, these mosaics of corn. That's exactly right. And do they have water? Because Mars doesn't have water. Well, they not only have water, they have oxygen, which the campaign is careful to point out, <laughs> oh. just in case there was some well, doubt about go. that. So we should look for uh, the new David Bowie album, Life on South Dakota. <laughs> That'll be right. great. Yep. Can't wait. <laughs> One other thing, by the way, our show airs in South Dakota. That's a pretty big selling point. Oh, well, right. there you go. So I'm I'm, I'm moving. Canceling the Mars trip. <laughs> Richard's booking yeah. room at the Corn Palace. Sorry, New York. We've just apparently you've lost Richard Lawson and South Dakota. Congratulations on your new resident. Richard, thanks for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now time for cocktails right here on Planet Earth. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our shaken and stirring history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1994, a husband and wife team changed the internet forever. And definitely not for the better. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Lawyers have a bad rep, and Lawrence Cantor and Martha Siegel sure didn't improve it. In the early 90s, they were immigration lawyers who liked to post in online chat groups. Users kept asking them for legal advice, which gave the duo an idea. Advertise their firm on chat groups. The problem? Back then, the first rule of online etiquette was, thou shalt not post ads. 
a rule Cantor and Siegel broke when they sent out a post that said for a fee, they'd help users obtain green cards. The ad went to over 5,000 chat groups. The first commercial spam in history. This is the law. And as with spam today, people hated it. Cantor and Siegel's email account was flooded with hate mail. Their internet provider terminated their service. And a guy in Norway created a program specifically to destroy Cantor and Siegel spam. But the couple didn't back down. They claimed they made a hundred grand off their little ad and soon started a company to help other companies make spam. Cantor was later disbarred for illegal advertising practices, but the cat was out of the bag. Last year, about 67% of all email was spam. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I'm on the line with Craig Fury. He is bartender at Sidebar in Phoenix, Arizona, not far from where the first spam was released into the world like a virus. Craig, you heard the story. What drink did that inspire you to make? Well, so before I tell you what's actually in the drink, I'd first like to apologize on, on behalf of the entire state of Arizona for actually producing this thing that's been unleashed upon the world. We'll forgive you. This drink is called the Unsubscribe. Unsubscribe, of course. What's in this thing? Well, we start off with uh, an ounce and a half of bullet bourbon and then a couple of shakes of the, the Moss Mole Bitters from Arizona Bitters Lab. It's a, it's a local product. Okay, so we've got an Arizona theme worming its way into this thing. If I can use another computer term, the worm. Right, right. Nice job, nice job. Thanks. We're going to follow that with a squeeze of agave nectar, which is also also a southwestern element. Oh, yeah, because that's a desert plant, right? The agave right. succulent. Right. So then we've got a splash of sweet and sour, a half an ounce of fresh OJ, and three-quarters of an ounce of Canton ginger liqueur. Canton ginger? Is that also local? Uh, No. <laughs> But it tastes good. <laughs> but, it, but it is delicious. Okay, so we'll just throw that in there. And what is it? But what does any of this have to do with uh, spam email? Well, the drink itself isn't spam email. What happens after the spam? Because once you order this drink, then I'm just going to start bringing you other drinks, whether you want them or not. I'm just going to start bringing them. And the only way to make this stop is to close your account. <laughs> spam to death. That seems like a long way to go for you economically, though, to fit a theme. You're just going to be giving away a ton of free drinks. Well, it's stuff that we're trying to get rid of anyway, so. Oh, okay. So after this drink comes just like bottom shelf. Yeah, anything that we're trying to get rid of, you know, like your Uzo and <laughs> Galliano and you know, stuff that people really don't even know what it is. Hey, my last name is Galliano. What are you saying? <laughs> Craig Fury, bartender at Sidebar in Phoenix. That drink will be on the menu there this week, and Craig insists he will follow through on mm. his plan <laughs> to unload his garbage liquor on anyone who orders that drink. So if you're low on cash and self-respect, <laughs> hop to it. <laughs> That's right. And folks, if you subscribe to our weekly newsletter, you'll get cocktail recipes like that one delivered straight to your inbox. No spam, we promise. Sign up at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've made small talk, downloaded some history. Now it's time for the special sauce of any party, music. And here to help are the Scottish hip-hop group Young Fathers. Their 2014 album Dead won Britain's prestigious Mercury Prize. They've just released a new album called White Men Are Black Men 2. Here they are to DJ a very deep dinner party. My name is Chaos, and this is G from Young Fathers, and this is our dinner party soundtrack. Song up down. So the first song is White 
Man's Got a God Complex by The Last Poets. Who's gonna die next? Cause the white man's got a God complex. If I was sitting in that dinner party and that song played, I would think straight to the time period when it was actually recorded back in the 70s and black power activists like Stokey Carmichael, Shirley Chisholm and Angela Davis. I've said those names to my wee nephew when he was like 14 or something and he didn't have a clue who those people were. So having a song like that, even just playing in the background, it will spark something. Opens the door for discussion. Damn, I'm so poor. I don't know what in the hell I'm gonna do anymore. Not from this day to the next. Cause the white man's got a God complex. And there's some few lines that stuck with me. I'm making guns. I'm God. I make guns. I'm God. I'm making gas. I'm God. Yes, I'm God. I'm making freak machines. I'm God. It's, it is a funky song. Like you can move to it. Yo, the rhythm is amazing and the way the words are delivered is very percussive has a nice drive to it you feel the passion the second song that i've picked for the dinner party is toots and the maytals toots and the maytals toots and the maytals in the dark in the dark. Case's Jamaican accent. That's not what a Jamaican sounds like either. I know, that's what Case sounds like. Anyway. In the dark. In the dark. The music is based in gospel. Toots grew up in a gospel choir. It kind of feels like you're in church. Plus his voice. People used to say he was like the reggae Otis Redden. People tell me love, love is true. They tell me love, what love can do. I think a lot of reggae songs kind of lend themselves to a good party. But they're a good example of how you can feel good and you can nod your head and you can want to move to it. But if you listen to what they're saying, it's not as uplifting as the track feels. And I think that's something that we, as a group, we try and take on board. I mean, especially in, in this song, In the Dark, he's talking about darkness. He says, riddle me this, riddle me that, I bet you don't know just where I'm at. It sounds like he's talking about he doesn't really believe that someone loves him who pretends to love him. I could have picked any song of that album, to be honest, Toots and the Maytals in the Dark. To me, it's one of the best albums ever made. If it was, this was the party albums, I would pick that. I've decided to go for Iggy Pop Nightclubbing. I was going to pick that. <laughs> Where are you? I just like how it starts in, it's like... Iggy comes in night clubbing. Oh. Night clubbing. We're night clubbing. It sounds sleazy in a good way. <laughs> when I hear the song, I hear Iggy taking the, the role of a businessman going to these really fancy nightclubs and just thinking that he owns the world and and he's the man and he has no taste in anything, really. He's just a, he's just a sleaze ball. We learn dances, brand new dances, like the nuclear bomb. 
kind of sums up nightclub and oh it's just beautiful man and like it makes sense that he was in berlin when he was recording that album he must have been soaking in the city the song that we pick of our own is old rock and roll It's about stereotypes, gender stereotypes, and also the history of rock and roll in uh, Congo Square in New Orleans, which is the only place where the slaves were allowed to play music. I think that's the ideal balance with us, as you want two things at the same time. Two things at contrast. G. Hastings and K.S. Bankole of Scottish hip-hop group Young Fathers. They're on tour now. All right, coming up, musician Mark Ronson puts his hit song Uptown Funk in perspective. Yeah, we wrote the Macarena for 2015. Plus, I experience war in French fry form when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party's conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Emily Post's great-great-grandchildren say it's okay to ignore birthdays. And in a few minutes, author Amelia Gray reads from her new book, Gut Shot. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's producer, musician, and DJ Mark Ronson. He was once best known for producing Amy Winehouse's breakthrough album, Back to Black, as well as hits for Adele and Nas. Mm. He's also released four albums on his own that made him a household name in his home country of England. But it wasn't till this year that he became well-known in the United States, thanks to this little number. This is that ice cold Michelle Oh, I've heard that once or twice. <laughs> that is, of course, Uptown Funk <laughs> off Ronson's latest album, Uptown Special. Man. It spent 14 weeks at number one this year, and right now it's still number two. It's sung by pop star Bruno Mars and features co-production from Mark's collaborator, Jeff Basker. When I spoke with Mark, I started by asking him to explain what exactly a music producer does. It's so different for every project, you know, because it really depends what the artist or the band needs. You have to be quite malleable. So, like, if I'm doing a track with Nas, producer in, like, the hip-hop sense of the word means that you kind of do the beat and the music, Mm -hmm. and then they write the lyrics. Fried chicken, fly vixen, give me heart disease, but need you in my kitchen. You a bird, but you ain't a key. Got wings, but you can't fly away from me. Driving in your bucket seats all the way. Um, with Amy Winehouse with Back to Black, she had most of the songs that was her on an acoustic guitar, and she would play them for me, and they were in like a very raw form. And then I would try and imagine what arrangement that she was hearing in her head. That's kind of what you're trying to do a lot as a producer. You're almost trying to like guess what the artist, how they would dream in an ideal world that this song that they wrote would sound, right? So you come up with what the drums are doing, what the guitar is doing. You kind of like arrange the band. Can't 
And then there's times with my own album where producer is a bit of just like a blanket term because most of the time I'm, you know, writing at least half of the music or the melody and then playing the instruments and doing the arrangement and then just finding. I guess you start to write the song and then you think like, okay, who would sound great singing this? Mm. You're sort of part director, part casting agent. You're like a sideman actor. You know, there's all these kind <laughs> of like roles that you kind of fill. Yeah. Well, you certainly um, did a pretty spectacular job as casting director for this album. You have uh, everyone from Stevie Wonder to Bruno Mars, but also some unknowns like the singer Kiana Starr. Um, how did you discover her? We went to Memphis. You know, we went on this road trip through the South because we wrote this song, I Can't Lose, and thought it would be great to find an undiscovered talent, a great singer, and we said, let's go literally drive up the Mississippi and go to churches and bars and, and find someone. And every singer that we saw was pretty spectacular. But, you know, there were two things. We had kind of a specific voice and the tone that we were looking for. Mm -hmm. And then also we needed somebody that was like, you know, kind of down to travel at least to LA to cut a record, maybe would go on tour. So we'd hear this great singer, we'd get all excited and be like, hey, so do you think you would come to, uh, you know, L.A., and they'd be like, well, I could never imagine uh, missing my choir rehearsal on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> it's really, it's like the anti-sort of pop idol world, you know? It's yeah. like everybody wants to get on TV to start singing in order to become famous. These people are like, have an opportunity maybe to have something. It's like, no, that's not why I sing. That was kind of really nice to see. But ultimately, you did find someone. Yes. We went to this... Uh, it's like this little restaurant on this campus of uh, college, a black college in Jackson, Mississippi. And she kind of walked in, Kiani, and it was definitely one of those things where she walked in and you're just like, oh, please let this one be good. <laughs> she just like had this awesome kind of look. She had this like pixie haircut and this spiky earring. And she got up and she just had this grit in her voice that I really love that slightly burnt, broken thing in the voice that Lauren Hill and certain singers that we love all have. Yeah. So I actually took her aside and I was like, okay, well, let's not get our hopes up. So I said, do you know like what this would be like if this happened and you're willing to kind of go on tour and kind of uproot your life a bit? And she just looked at me and she was like, honey, I can't wait to quit my job at Comcast. Let's go. <laughs> Another unlikely contributor to this album is Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Michael Chabon. I would be organically egged by the public radio audience if I didn't ask you about this. Uh, you invited him to write lyrics for the album. How did that happen, and ultimately, how did it work? Because writing novels is different than, you know, writing pop songs. With Michael, like, there was never... It was never a case of him sending us words that, like, weren't exceptional, like, everything. I, I still remember the very first thing that he sent when I told him about the record. Basically, my email to him was like, how come music with a groove can't have clever lyrics because it used to, and I want to see if we can do that. Hmm. So he sent me this first lyrics, and it was, in the back room of the El Mago Casino under a portrait of Kolar the Great, between an X-Whale and a paradox of Zeno, soft candy betting hard eight. And they're just like so amazing, like so expressive, like I can picture the whole thing. And then me and Jeff are just like, how the hell do we put this to music, though? <laughs> but, yeah. okay, well, the great 
Michael Shaman had spoken, like, we got to try at least. And then, yeah, it did, you know, it did come down to, you know, when Michael came down for the first time, he wrote some great lyrics, but for some reason it just wasn't matching the mood of the music. We'd be, like, in the corner, like, if Michael went to the bathroom, like, is it okay to tell him maybe we should rewrite this part? <laughs> but for the most part, we all just kind of surrendered any kind of ego or, like, attachment to things just to make everyone in the room believe in it. In the back room of the El Marco Casino Under a portrait of Doris Day You and I And a pair of C-Notes Soft candy bedding Hard aid Not quite how you laid it up for me Well, I've gone long enough without asking you about this monster hit you created, Uptown Funk. What is it like being involved with a song that's such a stratospheric success? It's really bizarre, and it's the different level of success. Like, actually, none of my other songs have ever charted on the Billboard Hot 100 before, let alone to have a number one, you know? Mm. It's insane, and one week at number one obviously would have been probably the crowning achievement of, like, my career. So when it started to get into, like, six and seven and eight weeks, and there are these numbers that they almost sound surreal, and I'm definitely not unappreciative. It's insane, but because I believe in work, now we're not working any harder for it to stay there, so I feel, like, a little guilty. Like, it's just <laughs> sort of taken on... It's just on locked in. ...its own thing, and it's... The song came out of a jam in Bruno's studio of just playing instruments with three dudes that I feel especially fond of playing the music that we love. And it's, I guess that joy maybe comes across and that's why like kids love it. It's like something that just people, it makes people happy. And I texted Bruno yesterday, I was like, man, can you believe it? Like 14 weeks. And like he just wrote back his typical like self-deprecating. Yeah, we wrote the Macarena for 2015, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Mark Ronson and Rico, I have to admit, I actually didn't remember what the Macarena sounded like, so I YouTubed it, and just be warned, don't listen to it unless you're prepared to have it in your head for basically the rest of the year. That's right. It's a sonic virus. It is. And uh, people, if you're willing to brave it, we've posted a whole list of insanely infectious pop songs at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. to eavesdrop. Author Amelia Gray evokes storytellers like Shirley Jackson and David Cronenberg with her offbeat visceral writing. In 2012, her novel Threats was shortlisted for the Penn Faulkner Award. Today we overhear a piece from her new story collection. Hi, my name is Amelia Gray. My new book is called Gutshot. Gutshot is 38 short stories. Some of them are very short, just a page or two, and they're meant to be read as parables or fables. I like to explore feelings of love and loss and human hearts and of feeling a little bit strange in the world. Here's a story from the collection called A Contest. The gods decided that, once a year, they would have a week-long contest and allow the one person who felt the most grief over the loss of a loved one to have that loved one return. They made a contest of it for their own curiosity and amusement 
and to boost morale in the beyond. It was a hit on the planet. Piles of flowers obscured the names on every cemetery grave, and highway shrines glowed elaborate with electric light. A wealthy man held a parade for his mother, which spanned eight city blocks and included great rolling floats, representing her spinach casserole and childhood home. On a flat expanse of farmland, a woman used sweaters and slacks to spell out A-L-A-N, Allen, in the event the gods passed overhead in a helicopter, as they sometimes did. Three girls scrubbed the grime from the corners of their friend's locker and decorated it with streamers. Somebody's grandfather placed a single rose on the pillow beside him and wept until he died, thoroughly missing the point. A child's preserved room was filled with candy until the windows broke and spilled wrapped butterscotch and strawberry suckers into the street. Weeks later, on the third floor of an apartment building, a woman opened her door and saw that her little black cat had found his way home. Writer Amelia Gray reading from her just-released story collection, Gutshot. That piece is called A Contest, and you are listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, uh, Brendan, happy King's Day. Oh, well, I prefer Prince over Elvis, but thank you, I guess. (laughs) That's good to know. But I am talking about King's Day in my favorite country, the Netherlands. Oh, of course, that King's Day. Sure, everyone knows about it. Yeah. This is a a holiday when the Dutch celebrate their king's birthday, April 27th, Mm -hmm. which in the city of Amsterdam consists of about a million people partying in the streets where they drink many beers and probably consume about 50,000 tons of the country's favorite street food, Flemish fries. All right. That's their name for French fries, I'm guessing? More or less. But uh, of course, it's named after the Flanders region of Belgium. Mm -hmm. And they're often served with unusual condiments. Hmm. So when I was in Amsterdam last week, I met with Vicki Hampton. For eight years, she's written the blog Amsterdam Foodie. We bought some fries from a popular stand called Vleminks, and I first asked about the etymology of Flemish fries. The name came about, or at least the rumor is that the name came about because the Americans, in fact, your countrymen, soldiers who were over in Europe during the First World War, they had these amazing chips, as I would call them, being a British person, and heard the language spoken by the people who were making them, and it was French, so they started calling them French fries. In fact, those people were Belgian, where they also speak French. And so they're actually Belgian fries. Oh, so the Dutch have it right. Yes. (laughs) So we're all idiots. That's what we've learned today. Basically what I'm saying, yes. But I will say that when I think of, say, I get steak frites at a French restaurant, they're always thin fries. These are thicker. Yeah, these type of fries are much heartier. And I believe they're at least twice or maybe triple cooked. So that's why they're kind of fluffier in the middle and still crispier on the outside. Whereas 
French fries like you get at McDonald's and stuff, the really thin ones that go cold all the time. We don't really eat them much here. How did they become so popular in specifically the Netherlands? I feel like this is one of the most fry-happy cultures I've ever seen. I'd take a guess that in the Netherlands, the Belgians have a reputation for being the bon viveurs. There's like a, an expression, bourgondisch, sort of stands for like enjoyers of life. And so the people from Belgium and the south of the Netherlands are known for eating the good food, drinking the good wine, having a good time. And I think that's probably why we love eating Belgian fries, because we think that they're kind of the best, the most enjoyment you can get out of fries. So the, the topping choices and varieties are insane. Take us through some of the ones that we might not know. I think most people know about mayo. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are kind of mayonnaise-based, sort of curry sauces that are quite mayonnaise-heavy. Um, there's peanut sauce, there's um, capsalon, which means hairdressers, and it's basically fries with the contents of a kebab dumped on top of it. So like shawarma meat. And then, well, they sometimes put sambal on top of them as well, which is a super spicy red pepper sauce. It comes from Indonesia, and it's commonly eaten with Indonesian food, which obviously we have a lot of here in the Netherlands. Now, it's not obvious to a whole lot of people that Indonesian food would go with the Netherlands, but it is super popular here. Yeah, it was a colony, yeah. And then there's been tons of Indonesian immigration to Holland since then. Tons of Indonesian restaurants in Amsterdam and around the Netherlands. It's kind of like, like as Indian food is to London, I would say, exactly. Indonesian yeah. food is to Amsterdam. Yeah, precisely. And then something called, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Orloch topping? Yeah, so orloch literally means war. Apparently it's because it looks a huge mess. It's basically mayonnaise, peanut sauce and chopped up raw onions. So it's quite a combination. And if you could see our fries now sitting in front of us, they do look like a huge battle of toppings. It's total carnage on top of these fries because you have the dark squirt of peanut sauce and then a squirt of white mayo next to it and then there's just onions all over the top of it. Where did this concept come from? So the peanut sauce, I believe, is also the Indonesian connection. So we'll have satay sauce with everything. I don't think even people really realize now that it's not natively Dutch, let's say. It's not peanut butter. It's more like, uh, it's more savory. The kind of thing you dip chicken in, in like a uh, Thai restaurant. Yeah, so precisely satay sauce. All right, and then the mayo, I guess, comes from because everybody loves mayo over here. Yeah, I mean, obviously France is close by and that influence just came from there over the years. And then the onion comes on top and I've noticed the Dutch love putting onions on everything including like you get a piece of herring that will be otherwise raw but you put onion on it. Why? The Dutch usually like quite big flavors I've noticed. It's not my favorite to be honest. Sometimes I ask for orloch without the onions because I find the raw tang a bit too much. Well I'm about to experience it regardless of what you think <laughs> for journalism. And I've got a piece. Oh, look, I picked up... There's sauce on there. Yeah, I picked up the perfect piece. It's got just the right amount of all of those three ingredients. And we'll see what happens when I put it in my mouth. Here we go. You know, it's not as insane as I thought it would be. The peanut part just adds a little bit of extra savoriness to the mayo part. They have similar consistencies, really, and it just adds a little bit, makes the mayo less bland, I find. When you have it, I mean, have you, do you ever order it this way? Yeah, I do, yeah, yeah. I mean, usually it's three o'clock in the morning and not at five o'clock in the afternoon, but yeah, I do. <laughs> I guess this is, is this kind of drunk food in the Netherlands? Yeah, I mean, obviously the fries stand that we just went to, because it's one of the most famous ones in the city and it's really, really good. People go there at all times of the day. But for, I think, the majority of Amsterdamers who are working and living here, it's more of a late-night drunk food, indeed. I, I have a feeling that may be where the Orlog topping came from. <laughs> Maybe. You know what? Just put some peanut sauce on. You know what? 
I'll also put some mayo on it. You know what? I'll also put some onion on that. <laughs> Just keep going. Just keep throwing it all on. And some cookies. <laughs> So, Brendan, first of all, we should acknowledge some Frenchmen dispute the idea that fries originated in Belgium. I'm shocked that they would dispute something. (laughs) Crazy that it's such a contentious issue with them. Uh, Also, I tried some fries with that sambal chili paste that Vicky mentioned. Mm -hmm. Very delicious and so spicy I had to stop before my lips fell off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was was serious. So your choices are either carnage on top of your fries or carnage inside of your mouth. Those are, yes. All right, folks, coming up, your etiquette questions get answered by a couple of pros, and we learn the dirty secrets of rain Mm. when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from the band Built to Spill. And coming up, we attempt to make talking about the weather interesting when we speak with Cynthia Barrett, the author of a new book about rain. We asked it to come back another day, and it did. Presto. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. We often invite a celebrity to answer them, but this week we have our resident editor etiquette to celebrities. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, they are the great-great-grandkids of Manners Maven Emily Post. They are co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette, the 18th edition, and they co-host the podcast Awesome Etiquette. Lizzie and Dan, welcome back. Thank you. Gentlemen, it is always a pleasure. Aww. God, you always up me on the intro. That sounded so good. <laughs> no, Lizzie, I liked your enthusiasm there. Yeah. Okay. Always Thanks, lead us guys. Off. I appreciate it. And Dan, your gentlemanliness is also appreciated. You're both great. See, look how polite we are. But Lizzie, Lizzie speaking of that energy, here in yeah. New York, it is a pristine day. And I can't help but think on days like this, you know, um, psychiatrists have all these cancellations, you know, people are kinder <laughs> to each other. Do you yeah. experience a similar dip at the Post Institute this time of year? Like people are just being kinder to each other. Yeah. And you guys um, are like, darn it, our phones aren't ringing. I, I think that in general, people have this sense of hope. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like the world's not so bad. But what we're saying is, does that then correspond to you guys feeling terrible because you don't have any business? It's No, because I get to cut out and go play golf earlier. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we have plenty of questions on our end anyway, regardless. That's right. There's still people with uh, problems. Yeah, somehow. That's true. Shut-ins who don't like the sun, I guess. Uh, (laughs) Let us begin with this one from Judy, who contacted us via Twitter. Judy asks, how do you handle sharing an uncut bread loaf that is served at a table? Do you each cut your own slice? Can you put your hands on the loaf? flummoxed more than once. Mm. This question really gets people. Flummoxed, you're not the only one. You really aren't, yeah. <clears throat> uh, if they provide a knife, go for it. The The tactic usually is to use the napkin that's in the bread basket to hold yep. the loaf, and then the oh. only part that you touch with your own hand is the part you're going to tear you're off for yourself. Eat. That's Correct. what it's for. I thought it was just a nice oh. little nest for the bread. Well, it serves both purposes. Both purposes, but you can use that napkin to, to hold the part that other people are going to eat. But wait a second, guys. I've never been to a restaurant where they handed me just a loaf of bread in a basket. What? Really? I've gotten rolls in a basket or pre-sliced bread in a basket. Well, or have you ever had one where the pre-sliced bread, they haven't gone all the way down through the bottom part of the crust? And so okay, yeah. it's like you go to tear it off and then like you get half a piece of bread. I guess I wasn't even picturing this question happening in a restaurant. I was thinking this is something that would happen at home. At someone's home? You'd do the same thing. But I guess then that's incumbent on the host to make sure that it has its little napkin nest. You got it. You got I it. I think it's okay to touch the loaf, guys, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Brendan, oh, you on. and I 
I can eat bread like loaf. that any day of the week. I'm I'm with you. I'm not a germaphobe. I yes. don't have a problem with yeah. it. Yeah, that's why they made the crust. <laughs> Maybe Judy works with a lot of nurses and people who are otherwise handling ill people or something like that. You they wash their know. hands all the time. But okay, it's two strategies. If there's a napkin there, Judy, use it. If you're at my house, <laughs> rip away. Grab the bread. All right, our next question comes from Sarah in D.C. Sarah writes... My fiancé and I are in the middle of wedding planning, and a debate with my future mother-in-law resulted in her making a beeline for the nearest bookstore to gift us the post book on wedding etiquette. <laughs> ah, yes. Right, the posts have a book on wedding etiquette. Yep. We had a book sale. Okay. That's probably where she got it. No, no, not like a book sale, like a book sold. Yay. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, okay. Hooray. Okay. I thought you were advertising. It's like, Jesus, no. this is public radio. Celebrate. All right. I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> Guys, can I continue with Sarah's question? Sarah continues. Yes, please. I thought it was passive aggressive, but acceptable at the time. The book is quite useful. Until I received another, even larger general etiquette book from my mother-in-law a few months later. What? Now I'm insulted that she has such a dim view of my manners. <laughs> is there another interpretation here? Sarah's being gifted like an en yes. encyclopedia okay. of etiquette. She's so impolite. Yes. Well, first, I hope that the second book that came was not someone else's etiquette book. Yes. But that, okay. that aside, um, this is a question Dan and I get all the time and that people are really nervous about gifting these books because they're like, am I implying something? You're not implying anything at you, all. You might be you might take it as an indication that this person thinks you would appreciate uh, a book about manners that you'd be interested. That it might be useful. Yeah, well, of course. But I mean, that's what she's saying. It's like if it's useful, then that means I need it. Not necessarily so. But think of it as a gift for the family library. It's a, yeah. a reference to keep in the home. It's a pretty book, too. Brought to you by Emily Post Etiquette 18th edition. Yeah, like you're oh, welcome like for giving That's you an good. opportunity to give people a reason to buy your book. Yes. All right, next question. Here's something from <laughs> Johan in Kolbotten, Norway. I hope I'm pronouncing Ooh. that right. All the way up in Norway. Oh, cool. Regarding birthdays on Facebook, asks Johan, what is the line between what's expected from a friend and coming off as a cold-hearted jerk? So I guess, is he obligated to post a birthday greeting? Should it be a long birthday greeting? Well, people, I, I, to me, this question's about the an emerging tradition, the Facebook birthday. Yes. When Facebook tells all of your contacts that it's your birthday if you've provided that information and they all wish you a happy birthday. And people love this. Some people really enjoy the Facebook birthday. I but do, yeah. But you're not expected to participate. You could have not been at your Facebook that day. No yeah. one's gonna No one's going to hold it against you that I you didn't offer that birthday greeting. And it also seems to me that there are so many... Generally speaking, if you have, you know, a significant chunk of friends on Facebook, you're not going to notice the people who didn't right. chime in. It's not like those uh, kind of Valentine's cards you get in grade school. When you, you notice track that the of five the kids that don't. The kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Exactly. Yeah. Johan, I would say that to be a cold-hearted jerk, you'd have to say something mean to the person on their birthday. That would be doing it. <laughs> you'd have to point out, I am pointedly not wishing you a happy yeah. birthday today. <laughs> exactly. All right, this next question comes from Chris Stops in Baltimore, Maryland. Chris Stops writes... If at the end of a dinner party, the host hostess offers coffee and tea, should you feel pressured to take coffee, even if you really want tea? Often there are only one or two tea drinkers at a party full of coffee drinkers, and the host now has to make two beverages to accommodate everyone. Ah. On the one hand, they shouldn't offer something that would be a pain for them to procure, <laughs> but still, what's a tea lover to do? 
I have an answer, but I want to hear your answer first. Yeah, Brendan's a tea lover. I feel like tea drinkers in America are an abused minority. Yeah. Actually, and I think <laughs> really? this is an opportunity to stand up. Yeah. Let's yeah. face it. It is not that hard to boil some water and, you know, put a tea bag or steep <laughs> yeah. some leaves in it. This is not complicated stuff. And it's nice of Kristaps to be thinking of the host. Yeah, it's nice of sure. you to think of the host, mm-hmm. but have your tea. I mean, ideally, you would have your tea delivered in a pot with a little thing of sugar cubes and that sort of thing. But you know what? Tea drinkers, we're so abused. We're, we're, we're just happy to be acknowledged. We just be happy with yeah like a like a tea bag with a string with a dumb slogan sticking out of it in a crack cup it's all leaking out <laughs> lukewarm I'm just glad not to be mocked let's start another tea revolution Kristaps. i like it only this time we won't throw it overboard we will not all right lizzie post daniel post sending thanks once again for telling our audience how to behave you're most welcome thanks so much for having us Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post and co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition, also pro-tea people, which warms my heart. Yes, and ladies and gentlemen, if you find yourself marginalized because of your food preferences Mm -hmm. or if you have any other sort of social dilemma, we and our etiquette guests are here to help. Send your queries to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Subvert the coffee paradigm. Hey, now. Just around the corner. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we get schooled in a dinner party worthy topic. Today the subject is rain and our expert is award-winning environmental journalist Cynthia Barnett. She has written two previous books about water and her latest book, fittingly, is about rain. It is called Rain, A Natural and Cultural History. Let's just begin at the beginning. This book is humongous. I'm not going to be able to talk about everything in it, obviously. (laughs) Um, But let's just start with the basics. What is rain? I can tell you that in a drop of rain is the water we know about, but then there also has to be something else. There has to be a little tiny something for the drop to cling to. So there's a tiny bit of dust or a even a tiny bit of bacteria, anything um, that's called condensation nuclei that allows the drop to actually cling around. That's what it needs to form a drop. Does that mean there's no such thing as clean rain because it's all clinging you to know, something? I hate to tell you this, but there's no such thing as clean rain. Oh, I've man. got I, I interviewed. I know. <laughs> I know it dashes. Uh, there's no clean snow either, really. Oh. When you think about it, you know, it, it falls through the sky that we've pumped full of all kinds of emissions. Mm. It travels around the world through anything we've put out into the world. So for me, that was sort of the really interesting lesson of this book. So getting rained on is basically like taking a dirty shower. (laughs) I don't know if I'd say that. Even with everything I've learned about rain and and what's in rain, I still love being out in the rain. I just danced with my kids in the rain yesterday. Well, dirty or not, uh, man has always had an interesting relationship with rain. Um, Man has often tried to control rain. Your book is filled with many colorful stories about people trying to master rain in one way or another. One of them that stands out is James Pollard Espy, yes. who was, I believe, America's first meteorologist. Yeah, so so the, the, the interesting thing about James Pollard Espy is that he was a brilliant meteorologist, and he was the United States's first 
meteorologist. Mm-hmm. And Under Ulysses he, Grant, right? The president? Yes, was, yes. Yeah. And the one falter he had in, in his atmospheric brilliance is that he believed that fire caused rain, which which makes sense. You know, remember what I said about you needing some little tiny particle. So he thought yeah. that if we sent particles up into the atmosphere, that it would make it rain. So he actually proposed to Congress that we plant vast forests throughout the middle of the nation and light them afire <laughs> um, when drought came so that we could make it rain. And um, that never happened. And the interesting thing about why it didn't happen it's not that people didn't believe that we could do it. It was that actually the Southern congressmen were really worried about the federal government as they still mm. are, right? Yeah, so they yeah. didn't want the government to be able to control the weather. And that's why his oh, proposal didn't pass. Yeah. So it wasn't, they weren't suspicious of Espy's idea that if you burned no. large swaths of forests, rain would come. No. No, people had very crazy ideas about how to make it rain. Well, people can turn to your book if they want to hear uh, more of those stories, because now we're going to play a game I created. (laughs) There's so many neat facts in this book, I was trying to think of a way to uh, get to them. So I created this game. It's called the Rain Fact Lightning Round. Get the pun? Oh, I love it. it. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. I love it. And so so I'm going to read you some facts I learned in your book, and you can maybe just give me a short explanation. Let's do it. I'm ready. All right. So the first one is the, the expression, when it rains, it pours. Okay. When it rains, it pours comes from an ad developed for Morton Salt Company in 1911. So you know the wonderful girl with the umbrella on the cylinder of of Morton's salt? In the early 20th century, table salt had this notorious problem of caking up in rainy weather and nobody could get their salt out of the canister. So Morton began adding something. It was an anti-caking agent called magnesium carbonate Mm -hmm. to its salt so that it would pour better. Uh, but But the executives did want to say, oh, yay, we have added magnesium carbonate. (laughs) So some brilliant marketing person came up with when it rains, it pours so that they could emphasize the benefit that that Morton salt could pour in any weather. It's actually a really elegant tagline. Now it just reads like cynicism. You know, it's just like, well, of course, when it rains, it pours. But in reality, it's like, no, when it it rains, the salt will pour because it will not cake. Okay. This one's a little more obscure in the lightning round, but... You'll know what I'm getting at, and you can explain it to us. Pruned fingers. Yeah, so finger wrinkles. We evolved in what scientists call pluvial times, a a time of a lot of rainfall in in East Africa so many million years ago um, when we began walking upright. The rainforest was turning to desert and... Um, you know, we, we stand up and begin to search for rain. So a neurobiologist I interviewed named Mark Cengizi um, has linked the finger wrinkles on our hands to those times. He, he hypothesized 
that we needed um, grips. They're essentially rain treads for helping mm. us get along in those in those jungles in super rainy times. And we don't we don't need them when it's not when when it's not raining. Our fingers are smooth because it's better to grip with smooth fingers in dry times. But in wet times, our fingers actually do a much better job of gripping when we have those finger wrinkles. It's like tires for your car. Right. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and so my last question, what is your favorite song about rain? That's a really hard one. Um, I'm going to have to say, and this is odd because I love rain, <laughs> but I Can't Stand the Rain by Ann Peebles. All right, we're going to use that song to go out. Uh, okay. Cynthia, thank you for braving the rain in Florida to come speak with us. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been really fun. Cynthia Barnett. Her new book is called Rain, A Natural and Cultural History. And uh, Brendan, living in Southern California like I do, I mm-hmm. was fascinated to learn that in some places, water just falls out of the sky. It is totally a thing. Maybe I'll experience that one day. Come to New York sometime. Sounds weird. Uh, And folks, that's the dinner party download for this week, sad to say. But you can keep up with us all week on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker is the producer of the Dinner Party Download. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Our intern is Ed Morales. Bill Lance and Garrett Lang engineered. Thanks to Nina Patek. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. And hey, if you're listening in Minnesota, we're coming to visit you on Saturday, May 9th. That's right. We are taping the show live at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul. Guests include comedian Michael Ian Black, musician Angel Olsen, and Minnesota Book Award winner Marlon James. Get your tickets at FitzgeraldTheater.com. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from your next party. This week, Boise, Idaho guitar heroes Built to Spill put out their first album in six years. Mm. It's called Untethered Moon. Here's a song from it called Never Be the Same. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. And oh my God, what is happening outside? It's just drizzling a little bit, man. Is God crying? No. I'm frightened.